The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. There is much more of a focus on the person, the individual, and it not just being sort of the master and servant relationship traditionally. I think also people are sort of used to talking more about their feelings and seeing other people talking about their feelings on social media. You know, you just got to look on LinkedIn these days. It used to be a whole load of articles that people have written and posts and things like that. But now, you know, I've seen pictures of people breastfeeding at their kitchen table on LinkedIn and people sort of sat next to a hospital bed where their best friends just passed away. And, and, and you know, so we're sort of constantly being showing these images and being told sort of what we would traditionally have thought of being the most sort of innermost secret feelings of, of complete strangers. So it becomes sort of this normalisation of talking about very personal issues. Today I'm speaking to Michelle Last and Michelle is a partner at Keystone Law. She specialises in employment law. She's a key influencer on LinkedIn. She's written articles and commentary published in numerous publications and I'm going to speak to her about the issue of fertility in the workplace. In this episode, please do be aware that we do discuss in detail issues concerning bereavement, fertility issues, stillbirth, miscarriage. What I found particularly interesting about this episode is when we got into it, there aren't really many legal rights for people undergoing fertility treatment or experiencing loss, bereavement in the workplace. Really, the onus is on both the employee and the employer. The employer in terms of having good policies, having a culture whereby people feel comfortable sharing their fertility journey, having perhaps employee resource groups or events that talk about these kind of issues and normalising in the workplace. The onus is also on the employee. Perhaps they want to share with their employer about what they're going through. And so really there are bills and proposed amendments to the legislation, but at the moment there's very little legal rights. So listeners, sit back, please enjoy the episode. I hope you find it informative and can empower you as well. The Hearing. Michelle Last, it's a pleasure to have you on The Hearing Podcast. Welcome. Hi, Yasmin. Great to see you. Um, So full disclosure to our listeners, Michelle and I actually went to university together and studied law together. So We've known each other for, for quite a long time now, uh, graduated in the year 2000, which seems like a long time ago. Um, and Michelle, we, we brought you on here um, as a guest because you're an employment lawyer at Keystone Law, a partner there. And we wanted to dig into fertility rights at work, what people's rights are. And I've noticed this is a topic alongside menopause and other women-related issues that are really becoming very topical in the workplace. Um, So I thought you'd be the perfect guest to talk about these issues because you're blogging about it and writing articles on LinkedIn, which I've been um, following, um, really interesting area. So firstly, I'd I'd love to find out a little bit more about you, or well, for our listeners to find out more about you. Could you just tell us what motivated you to get into law in the first place? Yeah, sure. Um, I've always been interested in law for as long as I can remember. I was sort of very fortunate that as a child, I knew that I wanted to get into a career in law. And as I looked more at sort of different options for careers in law, I settled on becoming a solicitor and ended up here. And was there any particular area that you're interested in at that early stage or employment law? Was that on your radar then? Or was that a a subject you, you became interested in later on? 
It was definitely something a bit later on. I think when I was younger, sort of classically interested in sort of law enforcement um, mm. and thought about being a, a judge potentially one day. And uh, then when I did my training, I sort of at that point thought I wanted to be a tax lawyer. But um, I happened to do my final seat in employment just because other people had said they thought it was quite a good seat to do. And um, sort of very quickly on doing employment, I just realised it was what I wanted to do. I really like the people aspect of it. It's sort of very politically... Um, current it's, a, it's an ever-evolving mm. area of law but I'm, in particular I really like just dealing with the people aspect of it and you know it's a very personal area of law and you know, it's really fascinating you get to have a really good relationship with your clients so it's a really interesting one to be involved in. Mm, mm. And so when did you qualify was it 2003 probably same time as me? Yeah, I think it was 2004, um, I took a, took a few months out, um, but I, I went sort of the traditional route, working in a big city law firm, tried a stint outside of London, which didn't really work for me. Um, mm. And um, I just thought then I really wanted to end up in a firm where I sort of had more control over the work that I was doing and uh, sort of managing more of my own work and, and being able to talk about matters that were important to me, like things like this with fertility, um, and other issues that are important to me. And um, in sort of traditional law firms, um, there are quite a lot of restrictions around what you can say um, and things like that. So um, I ended up working at Keystone, which has been a really good fit for me because I have much more control, as I said, over mm. the work that I do and um, sort of more in control of my own destiny, which is much better. Yeah. And so tell us a little bit about Keystone Law. What makes it that much different from traditional law firms then? What is it particularly about it? What's the business model and how does it work then? Yeah, so it's a, it's a different business model to sort of traditional law firm and it operates more more like a barrister's chambers. But from my perspective, it means that I, I take on only the work that I want to do um, and have a much more personal relationship with my clients. Um, and as I said, I can talk about matters that are important to me. Obviously, being a lawyer, you have to be sort of careful in terms of what you say, particularly on social media and things mm. like that. But I do have opinions on matters and, um, you know, obviously I express those in a way that's sensitive and, and thoughtful. But, um, you know, it means that I can have an opinion and, and say things. And, and in particular, when I see things happening um, in terms of the political landscape, social landscape, that sort of thing, I can pass comment on that and, and say to people that these are the things I'm seeing in practice and I don't have the same kind of reservations and um, barriers that I would sort of in a traditional law firm. Mm, that's quite refreshing and very freeing I can imagine to, to be able to to do that in your work. It is yeah yeah. Let, let's get stuck into it so fertility treatment there will be women and men going through this um, and um, firstly let's clarify what, what are the different types of fertility treatment available because people might just think it's IVF, but it's it's much more involved than that, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And, and like you said, sort of traditionally, people think of a white middle-aged couple mm. um, who are going through IVF. Um, but actually, it's, it's much broader than that. Um, so there's about one in six couples experience infertility. That's a really high number. So if you think about that, it's likely that somebody you know will be affected by infertility. Um, There's about three and a half million people in the UK have a fertility problem. Um, So it is a high number and it is something that I experience um, because for employers and employees, I sort of get it on both sides of the fence, if you like. Um, And as you said, not just heterosexual couples now, but there are more trends with sort of same-sex couples, single women and surrogates going through fertility treatment. 
um, and more people are talking about it than ever before, I think, because of sort of social media and also just changes in society with people being much more open about things they're experiencing and, and looking for support. Um, but in terms of the, the actual types of fertility treatment, again, that's sort of really broadened. There are literally thousands of different types of treatments that are available. Um, and uh, sort of traditionally, they fall into three categories. So one is, is sort of medicines, which are designed to help things like for women, perhaps with ovulation, that kind of thing. Um, there's also uh, what you call surgical procedures, which are designed to help usually with some sort of physical obstruction to mm. pregnancy. Um, and then also you get things like assisted conception, which is IVF. Um, so just to, to sort of recap for our listeners, IVF is where um, a woman takes fertility medication to help her produce more eggs. Um, the eggs are then removed by a procedure which is called a follicular puncture um, and the eggs are then fertilised in the lab um, before the um, fertilised egg is then put back into the womb. So, I mean, there are literally thousands of treatments and and if you're based in England, unfortunately, you're much less likely to get NHS-funded treatment. For instance, in 2017, it was only 35% of treatments were funded, but if you're in Scotland, it, it went up to 62%. But mm. um, it's expensive and very stressful for those who are going through it. Yeah, and that's really helpful. And and it is a high figure, isn't it? One in six. I think mm. also um, I read recently that the, the access to IVF on the NHS has, has widened. And so um, single women and female same-sex couples are also um, going to get greater access. So that's going to just increase the demand um, and the, the, the requirement for employers really to, to understand these issues um, and be more sensitive to them. Um, I mean, I, I told you um, I went through IVF a couple of years ago. My son is two now, and we had two rounds. And, you know, it was probably one of the most stressful experiences I've ever had. Um, you know, the hormones that they pump you with and then the, the disappointment uh, when the first round didn't work and... I was self-employed at that time and so I didn't need to sort of speak to an employer or line manager about it. Um, and so I, I often imagined what it would be like if I was working in, in the law firm and how I would have those conversations if I would at all. Um, because people don't even say when they're trying to get pregnant or when they're in the first 12 weeks of pregnancy, let alone undergoing IVF treatment. There could be a lot of um, people can be feel ashamed about it and have all sorts of complicated feelings about going through that process. So it's, it's incredibly stressful, it takes a huge emotional toll. Uh, there'll be lots of women and, and, and men listening to this thinking, um, what, what are your rights at work when you're having fertility treatment? So could you sort of share with us what, what their rights are? Um, well, they're, they're sort of very minimal, really. And mm. um, the main one, as you said, the sort of main particular issue with people going through fertility treatment is the right to time off work. But in fact, you don't have a right to take time off work to undergo fertility treatment. So um, if you want to take time off, then normally you have to take annual leave. But, um, you know, as you may have found and other listeners may find, if you're having lots of cycles of treatment, then that can amount to quite a lot of time off. Um, so it's not always practical to say that um, you're going to take your annual leave um, and, you know, and you may also just want to take holiday at separate times as well and actually have a break. So um, it gets into a difficult situation and so I've had it with individuals who I've represented where they're sort of wanting to take time off and they don't necessarily want to take it like a whole day off either to, to go and have an hour's worth of treatment for something. So um, 
it's difficult for the individuals because as you said it's very private matter and lots of people don't want to talk to their line manager um but if they do there's probably more scope then for that individual to get time off work or just to agree that maybe they can kind of adjust their hours um, or work around um, appointments and things they don't have to take so much time off but um it's also not to be taken off as sick leave either and that's one that i think people often get confused by because taking um time off for a voluntary treatment is not actually sick leave so it doesn't qualify as sick leave um however if say somebody has say IVF and then they're sick subsequent to that then it is possible that they may then qualify for sickness absence that time off because then they generally are sick because of a a, a treatment that they've gone through but generally pe- uh, people have very little rights in terms of taking time off for um fertility treatment yeah and and I know there's a I'm sure you've come across there's an organisation called Fertility Matters at Work mm. um, and founded by some women who've experienced uh, fertility issues. Um, and this organisation exists to educate and inspire businesses to, to bring about awareness of how fertility issues affect both their employees and, and the organisation. And they carried out some research in 2020, which I found interesting. Um, and the respondents said, 68% of them said that their treatment had a significant impact on their mental and emotional well-being, which is not surprising. Um, and 69.5% actually took sick leave during their treatment, probably because there's a lack of fertility policies at work. Um, so they, they took it as sick leave. But but I know that there, there, are, there are a lack of rights in the workplace. And um, there's an MP, a Conservative MP, Nikki Aitkin, um, who's starting to campaign for a change in employment law. And I wondered if you could just talk through what that bill proposes, um, what, what the change in the law would be. Yeah, so we haven't seen the drafting of the bill as yet, but mm. um, as you said, it's, it's a private member's bill, um, a fertility treatment employment rights bill. And my understanding is that that is intended to give people time off work for fertility treatment and also if they've suffered a miscarriage. And it had its first reading in the House of Commons in June um, last month, and then the second reading is scheduled to take place in November this year. Um, but back early, um, earlier this year, in February 2020, the government did actually state that it had no intention of introducing bereavement leave following a miscarriage. Um, again, we're sort of a bit out of sync here because in the Scottish government, they're proposing three days of paid leave for families who've had a miscarriage or a stillbirth um, in the public sector. And also, I know in Northern Ireland, they're talking about introducing paid um, miscarriage leave in April 2026. So I think in England, we've got a bit of catching up to do, it's fair to say. Yeah, I mean, miscarriage, I mean, I think it's one in four or one in five pregnancies can result in miscarriage. Um, so just if we go back a bit, um, what what are people's rights then if, if they have a miscarriage? What what rights do people have in terms of time off? Or could you just explain that to the listeners? Um, yes, and I, I think that's sort of an important one as well, because if you fall one side of the line or the other, um, mm. it makes a, a massive difference in treatment. And as you said, the numbers around um, likelihood of miscarriages or prevalence of miscarriages, the numbers sort of vary quite drastically. I know we spoke about this before with the NHS saying it's sort of one in eight, but actually I think it is much higher than that. And I've seen it reported as one in four pregnancies result, result in miscarriage. Um, and so, it, you know, it's important to note what's classed as a miscarriage, what's classed as a stillbirth and a neonatal death. So um, a miscarriage is where the baby dies before 24 weeks of um, pregnancy. So before the first 24, 
24 weeks or in the first 24 weeks the, the mum doesn't have any right to statutory maternity leave the father doesn't have a right to take statutory paternity leave and neither of them will qualify for um, parental bereavement leave so um, in a sort of a classic miscarriage for 24 weeks then effectively the individual has to take time off for sick leave if, if they're sick um, they, they could be sick perhaps physically they might be unwell because people often are unwell physically as, as a result of a miscarriage but also um, mental um, you know health is also potentially impacted um, I think a lot of people would, would suffer emotionally from going through an early miscarriage um, and, mm. and so they may be able to get signed off for, for time of work for that, for sort of stress leave. Um, but then uh, uh, where somebody has a miscarriage after 24 weeks, um, it's classed as a stillbirth. Um, a neonatal death is, is occurs where the baby is actually born and that can be at any point, but then um, is born alive, but then subsequently dies. So that's the difference between a, um, a stillbirth and a neonatal death. Um, the legal rights that apply where somebody gives birth, i.e. sort of statutory maternity leave, that happens where a child is either stillborn after, as I said, the 24 weeks or where there's a neonatal death at any time. So um, if, if somebody gets to 24 weeks of pregnancy and then suffers a miscarriage or if the baby is born and then passes away at any point, the mother then will qualify for statutory maternity leave and the father will qualify for statutory paternity leave. There's also um, what's called statutory bereavement leave, um, which is the right to take up to two weeks parental bereavement leave, where there's a stillbirth, as I said, after 24 weeks, or neonatal death of a child, or where there's just a death of a child up to the age of 18. And that came into force in April 2020. Um, mm. And it has to be taken at any time within um, 56 weeks. So, and the reason for that time is, is it means that the parents can take um, time off around the anniversary of the death of their child, but it's only available to employees um, and it's the right to time off. So there are different rules that apply in terms of whether that leave is actually paid, but it, but it is possible then that somebody might qualify also for statutory bereavement leave as well as maternity leave, depending on, as I said, when the baby passes. No, that's helpful. And and you've referenced before about, um, again, changes um, in law for this miscarriage leave bill. Um, I think New Zealand also have a model um, where they have three days paid leave if, if somebody suffers a, a miscarriage at any stage of the gestation period. Um, so we've, we have got some catching up to do. I know there's a lot of campaigning around this issue. Um, so t t we'll see. I'm not sure. I think it's a, it's second reading, the bill, um, 16th of September. So we'll probably find out later on in the year um, what, what, what will happen in respect of that. So that's really helpful. Well, if people are listening um, and, and going through fertility treatment or about to undergo fertility treatment, how can employers actually support their staff? What, what support is out there that you've come across, Michelle? Well, in my experience, actually, it tends to be the larger employers that are leading the way in terms of supporting individuals going through fertility treatment. And there are sort of two core ways in which they're doing that. The first is by having a fertility policy or perhaps just a, a time off um, for special leave policy. Um, so that, that's becoming quite popular. Um, and one of the benefits of having a special leave policy is that it can cover sort of any particular reason that somebody might want to have time off for so it doesn't necessarily have to be for fertility leave but some employers do have specific policies 
Um, and, and the real benefit um, is sort of both for employers and employees in having written policies in place, because as I said, and, and we've discussed today, people don't necessarily want to talk to their employer about the fact that they're going through fertility problems. You know, I didn't, I remember my first um, pregnancy, I didn't tell anyone until I was about 19 weeks pregnant, because I, I just found it quite an overwhelming yeah. experience. Um, and, and so people react in different ways. And as you said, if, if people don't necessarily feel comfortable telling people when they are sort of first pregnant, um, they're probably less likely to want to talk about it um, before they're even pregnant um, and and potentially having issues. So um, having a written document in place means that the individual can look at stuff in their own time and and sort of understand what their rights are. Um, But also some employers are doing sort of fertility training and I I particularly do fertility training with a coaching company. Um, and that that's really beneficial because it helps talk about sort of how to talk to people when they're going through fertility um, treatments and or maybe sort of having fertility problems. Um, and and it's really important to be able to use sort of the right language that's supportive. Mm. Um, and you know sometimes people say things and and they may mean sort of in a well intentioned way, but um, sometimes yeah. it doesn't always sort of help the situation. Um, you know, pe- people are always trying to sort of give good words of advice and things like that, but it's not necessarily always the most appropriate mm. and the best thing to do. So, as I said, lots of organisations, particularly big organisations, doing fertility coaching training so that they can better communicate with people who are going through these situations. Um, and if you think about it from a line manager's perspective, it can be quite difficult because sometimes managers aren't really trained at being managers. They're sort of put in these situations mm. and, and they're expecting to manage work and they don't necessarily know how to manage people and their personal issues. So from the manager's perspective, it's also really beneficial if, if there's a policy so that they can also then look at it if somebody comes to them and says, well, I'm, I'm going through IVF or any time off for this treatment um, so that the manager's got a bit more of a steer in terms of how they should handle the situation as well. Mm. Um, so, so yeah, so those are the two core things, as I said, having a written policy in place and, and if you've got sort of the time and the resources, maybe looking at some sort of fertility training, coaching for managers. Yeah, so that the, the fertility training, that's aimed at HR as well and managers, are those the people that you've seen um, are being trained on those sorts of issues? Yes, exactly. That's the target, yeah. Because yeah. I would say, sort of, as, as I said, in my practice, I for both individuals um, who are going through fertility treatment and also um, uh, companies. And, and in terms of, sort of acting for companies, often the way I see this manifested is, is dealing with an individual who suddenly is taking a lot of time off and maybe isn't performing as well um, and can be quite irritable, potentially not getting on with their colleagues. Um, and 85% of people... Um, according to a study by Fertility Network UK, 85% of people said that they felt their fertility treatment had impacted on their work. 35% of people felt it impacted their career. And uh, a, a sort of a really high number, 42% of people felt suicidal as a result of their fertility problems or treatment. So you can imagine, and, and as you said, and, and sort of myself with my own fertility issues, it does change you as a person mm. during that period of time in your life. And, and obviously that naturally has an impact on your performance and potentially your conduct at work. So it is an important issue. And I think that's why employers do need to take note of it because it does naturally have an impact on how people are at work. Mm. So we can't just say it's a personal issue, that it's not something that's work related because it is whether you sort of want it to be or not. On the outside, you're a lawyer, calm and cool, but inside there's a passion to perform. 
a drive to be absolutely on your game. You prepare hour after hour, day after day in the pursuit of excellence, relying on superior resources, serious preparation, and total confidence. That's the advantage we give you. Be your best with Thomson Reuters Practical Law. We hear this phrase, bring your whole self to work. Well, sometimes you can't separate what's going on in your personal life. It doesn't encroach at work because I, I remember my consultant said to me, never underestimate the power of hormones. I was very emotional during that time. It was an emotional roller coaster. Um, so I agree with you that, that managers and HR and people need to sort of be clued up on these issues and, and um, be mindful of language and how they talk about sensitive issues like this. Just, you know, it's beneficial. It, it keeps people in work, you know, talented people who um, want to get on with their careers, but they're obviously going through certain issues. Um, and so that, you know, they need to be able to, to talk about them if they want to. Obviously, that's a, a choice. Um, I was really encouraged. I saw something on LinkedIn, um, this event I refer to by uh, hosted by Stevenson Harwood, where um, it was about f fertility in the city, I think it was called infertility in the city, something like that. And hmm. basically, it was people sharing their stories of their fertility journey. And it was hoping to normalize these conversations, allowing a safe space for people to ask questions and talk about their experiences. And I found that very refreshing. Um, you know, if that was available when I was going through my fertility journey, I would, I would definitely want to attend that sort of event and find people who, were, who, who understood the issues. Um, have you seen sort of, I've noticed, and I'm sure you've noticed in your practice, Michelle, where we are kind of talking about the menopause more at work, fertility issues, is that something you've seen in your practice? And, and could you just sort of elaborate on that? Absolutely have noticed the trend and in particular, even in just the last few years. And I think the pandemic has, has had quite an impact on that because I think there is much more of a focus on the person, the individual, um, and, and it not just being sort of the master and servant relationship traditionally. I think also people are sort of used to talking more about their feelings and seeing other people talking about their feelings on, on sort of social media. You know, you just got to look on LinkedIn these days. It used to be a whole load of articles that people have written and mm. um, posts and things like that. But now, you know, I've seen pictures of people breastfeeding at their kitchen table on LinkedIn and it, people sort of sat next to a hospital bed where their best friends just passed away. And, and, and you know, so we're sort of constantly being um, shown these images and being told sort of what we would traditionally have thought of being the most sort of innermost secret feelings of, of complete strangers. So it becomes sort of this normalization of talking about very personal issues. Um, and I think traditionally with sort of fertility problems in particular, I think maybe uh, people would have been very private about that. And, and sort of in some cultures, people can feel quite ashamed. There's quite a lot of family pressures, particularly in sort of Asian cultures and things like that. They don't typically talk about fertility um, issues. Um, whereas I think, as you said, it becomes sort of more normalised, so people do talk about it more. And um, because people are sort of having children later, and there are sort of um, different types of couples and single-sex people now wanting to have babies, the number of actual fertility treatments um, being undertaken is, is sort of increasing um, significantly every year. So it's just a combination of these factors, I think, in making people more open about it. Mm. And, and I, th I read somewhere as well that egg freezing for women, you know, sort of my age or late 30s are, I think that's the fastest growing 
fertility mm. trait treatment um, that women, you know, having careers and having children maybe late, maybe later on in life and, and choosing to freeze their eggs, that's a fast growing phenomenon. So um, again, that, that will require perhaps time off work or some flexibility in the workplace. Um, so it's ever changing. And, you know, uh, talking about the menopause as well, have you had many menopause related cases in your practice? What have you seen? I, I have, yeah, and, and sort of how it's come across in particular, I'd had one really interesting case with a senior executive female who said she had the sort of the brain fog come over during a meeting and um, she'd been kind of chastised for that um, by the senior executives um, because they thought she just effectively was a poor performer at that meeting and, and her response was, well, I'm going through the menopause, sometimes I'll just lose my train of thought type thing, so... So that was um, really important. But again, I think it's sort of uh, along the same vein of people being more open about sort of personal issues that are affecting them. And because menopause is such a well-publicised issue now, I mean, people people talk about it to me literally every week now, whereas, wow. again, sort of before, um, people would have been, um, you know, quite quite um, private about it, I think, potentially, because especially if they're suffering symptoms, the last thing they would want to do sort of historically would have been to flag up the fact that they've got those symptoms, whereas now sort of, and, and probably you find yourself the same, you sort of see another mum around or another woman or something, she'll say, oh, sorry about that, you know, I'm menopausal mm. or perimenopausal or something, and it's almost yeah. like a badge of honour these days. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's definitely it's definitely more prevalent in terms of people talking about it, and so it's coming out more in, in the work that I'm doing. Yeah, I mean, 51% of the population were going to experience this, and it's a large percentage <laughs> of the workforce that, that will potentially be perimenopausal or menopausal. I know I read something today actually that the Women and Equalities Committee um, said that there was a lack of support in the UK um, for for uh, in relation to understanding menopausal issues, and it was pushing women out of the workplace. And uh, this cross party group actually wants menopause to become a protected characteristic, like pregnancy, um, to give women uh, more rights. I, I don't know what your thoughts were on that. I mean, my understanding is that it could constitute a disability if it satisfies the criteria of what a disability is under the Equality Act, and therefore there is some protection there. Um, do you think it should be a protected characteristic? Again, these may be your own views, but what, what are your thoughts? Um, I, I think, yes, it already is protected, as you said, if it, if it has an impact on someone to sort of qualify as a disability, and, and that's mm. not necessarily a high um, threshold to meet, sort of depending on the situation. Um, I think, as I said, because that for employers and employees, I maybe have a slightly different perspective on things. If I was if I was purely a claimant lawyer, I think I'd be saying absolutely it should be a protected characteristic, and I'd probably be adding a whole list of other things too. But yeah. I think I actually think, um, especially with the pandemic, it's been quite a tough time for employers, and I think actually mm. we need a period of stabilisation and. I've seen in practice that often where we expand rights for people, that actually has sort of a negative effect and a backlash um, on people. Yeah. So I found that in particular with maternity, sort of as we've increased maternity rights, I think my experience is as we also see an increase in sort of discrimination against people um, who are mm. pregnant going on maternity leave. And I've seen the same with the Me Too movement too, where you know the intention is that we sort of enlighten people and people um, become more respectful of women in the workplace. My experience is it's had the opposite impact. And I've never seen such a degree of hostility towards women in the workplace as I do now. Um, so my concern is that 
whilst I think it's really important to raise things like um, people going through menopause and things like that, as I said, I just worry that the effect might actually be to sort of turn people against older women who might be going through the menopause because there's a fear that they're sort of greater protected. So I'm not really sure what the answer is. I think it's important to have awareness, Mm. but I think there's a a sort of a balance to be struck. And and my concern is probably with everything else that's going on in the world at the moment, um, Mm. maybe it's not, as I said, maybe maybe sort of counterintuitive and, and end up having yeah. the opposite effect. But yeah, it shouldn't be that way. I'm not saying that's how it should no, be. But in reality, understand. I said one of the things I like doing is saying what I'm seeing in practice. Mm. Um and and that is certainly what I see in practice. So my fear is actually that talk about the menopause whilst it's helpful for women and things like that may end up mm. having a, more of a negative impact overall if it's not managed appropriately mm. no that's I, I completely understand that I, I, a friend of mine who's also a lawyer said I'm concerned about yes I understand normalizing the menopause but I fear about the backlash that people may think oh older women going through this may not be uh, there can be younger women obviously experiencing this I appreciate that but backlash may be oh women aren't able to do certain things and we we really need to educate people uh, bring about awareness talk about these issues probably before we change the law maybe culture needs to evolve before we bring something out I don't know it's Mm. it's a topic to be discussed isn't it it's not clear cut and straightforward Um, I've certainly seen that with me too as well you get the classic uh, responses oh it's gone too far (laughs) you know Mm. where you know we've only just been talking about it in the last probably five, six years, um, but suddenly the focus is is, is talking about women-related issues. Um, so the culture needs to catch up, maybe. I don't know what the answer is either, but it, it's good to sort of talk about it. And it's interesting what's happening in your practice that you're seeing, actually, there's probably an increase in discrimination. Is that what you said, Michelle? I do, yeah. I, I do think there is an increase in sort of hostility in particular um, towards towards women and 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 particularly those who are going through uh, pregnancy and, and fertility things like mm. that but I think also there's an element of we all need to appreciate that yes people are people but also work has got to be done mm. um, and you know people are paid to do a certain job and you know at some point there's got to be a balance in trying to sort of manage the interests of the employer and the employee and as I said I sort of see it from both sides of the perspective and I think there is a certain amount of flexibility you can afford people, but essentially, um, you know, the, the mm. work is is for a certain thing, and, and that has yeah. to be done. And and you know, if your job needs to be done at a certain location at a certain time, then you have to try and find a way to manage that. And, yeah. and people also need to take some responsibility for themselves. Yeah, sure, completely. And to balance that, obviously, you know, it's obvious, really, isn't it? If people do feel supported, again, it's, it's balancing the fact that work needs to be done and and the employer needs to get the work done as well from the employer. But if we support people and and engage um, an employer, that that the employer is probably more likely to to perform better and less likely to leave the workplace as well. Because I know, you know, people who are menopause or perhaps women who are menopause or perhaps have have, uh, left the workplace because they haven't had sometimes very simple adjustments like some flexibility or um, maybe... uh, using a fan at work or um, just a slight adjustment that may not cost so much, um, but a little bit of flexibility to allow her to to perform at her best. Um, so, yeah, I, I agree with you. It's a, it is a balance that needs to be struck. 
Um, just lastly, Michelle, that there will be people, women, men, you know, undergoing treatment, fertility treatment, or about to start their treatment, and maybe they do not have a supportive employer, or perhaps they're not in one of those big city law firms. They may be in there as in a small organization. And what if they don't have that support or a policy? Are there other resources out there that could help them with their fertility journey? Do you have any advice for, for people like that? Um, yes. Yeah, so when I'm acting for individuals, I, I do tend to say, look, if you feel comfortable and you're able to bring yourself to do that, then it is better to confide in someone, uh, either a management or a HR level in your business, so they understand what's going on with you. Um, it's difficult if somebody doesn't have a good relationship with anyone but the thing is you're better protected in employment law if you have disclosed the fact that you know either you're going through the menopause or you're going through fertility treatment or something like that because um, it's very difficult for the employer then to dismiss you um, or to subject you to detrimental treatment if, if you've said that you're you're um, like going through fertility treatment because then you may be protected in employment law against discrimination because you're going through that treatment um, and it's related to your sex or something like that. So um, employees often don't want to um, talk to employers about it. But as I said, if they do, then they are sort of better protected. So I think, again, it's up for the individual then to think about sort of what's most important to them. But if the individual feels perhaps they might be subject to disciplinary action or performance reviews, that kind of thing, because perhaps they're taking quite a lot of time off work or maybe they're not performing at their best, then I think, as I said, the individual really needs to think about whether it's better just just, just be open with their employer. They don't necessarily have to tell them everything, but to say, look, I'm, I appreciate maybe I may not be myself at the moment, but I'm going through this really difficult person situation and I'm undergoing fertility treatment and I'm finding, you know, finding it very difficult to manage juggling work and things like that. And, you know, that's all that really needs to be said um, to make the employer yeah. understand why the individual is perhaps behaving in a different way to how they might ordinarily, mm. but also then to sort of better protect the individual um, from an employment law perspective in the event that, you know, they end up, as I said, being disciplined or performance managed or even sort of ultimately dismissed. Um, mm. But there are also, as you said, you've named some of them as well, sort of various organisations. Um, I quite like Fertility Network UK. Um, Working Families has also got some good stuff on there. And um, there's a very popular website, which you probably know, Pregnant Then Screwed. Um, yeah, we interviewed ah. yeah, the founder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Jane Brilliant, she's really fantastic. So um, certainly whenever I act for anyone who's pregnant, who's going through anything, I always say, I'll oh, check out Pregnant Then Screwed, um, just because it's very sort of um, accessible. Um, mm. It's not sort of as as corporate as maybe some of the other websites sort of see more sort of government type advice um but as i said it's sort of first-hand experiences and sort of people can really empathize with um situation that you're in absolutely but there is lots of support available um but as i said as an employment lawyer i would say this but as i said um you know it's better to protect yourself to talk to someone within your business as well yeah absolutely really good advice michelle that's brilliant and yes we we interviewed jolie brealy um from pregnant not screwed so listeners do do find that episode um, back. We'll, we'll, we'll probably put that in the notes, but um, that's a good one. And I refer people to them as well. I think they're fantastic. They do really good work um, and challenge government as well on certain issues. Um, I, I A little bit of advice from me as well um, for listeners. I When I went to the hospital, I asked them, what do employees do in this situation? You know, how do they, if they don't want to tell work specifically what they're going through, what, what can they do? And they said, well, sometimes the hospital actually sends um, the workplace, the employer, a letter 
just with the hospital address on it, just saying this person is undergoing some treatment. They're not saying what it is if, if people really don't want to share, um, but at least they know they're see- receiving some medical treatment. So it justifies why they're having time off and also understanding as well um, that, that they're going through something. Um, but, but you're right, if they can tell someone, that may help. And, and looking out for events such as Infertility in the City, which Stevenson Harwood hosted, as I mentioned before, just meeting with like-minded people who really understand the journey, that really does help you sort of talk through those emotions and find support from other people. So, um, Michelle, did you want to add anything else? Anything else you think we've missed out? Anything we've, we've covered? No, I think I think we've covered sort of most of the things that said, I think, just thinking about from your employer perspective, mm. um, just trying to make them understand sort of what you're going through so they can be a bit more understanding. And, and part of the stress with the fertility journey is, as, as I said, in my experience, is sort of people trying to get time off and trying to manage that. So if you can try and agree that with the employer, it would help sort of take some of that stress off because it is a very stressful situation and and you know ironically that's one of the situations that stops you getting pregnant as well so you've got to try and minimize stress and if you can try and minimize your stress with your employer that's obviously going to help a great deal absolutely michelle i'm sure the advice you've given and, and explaining what people's rights are and what what changes there may be in the law has will relieve people's stress because once they're aware of what what they're entitled to at work that will really feel make them feel more empowered about their situation so thank you so much for being a wonderful guest on the hearing thank you thank you listeners for uh, enjoying this episode with me and as ever any feedback or future guests or topics you want us to explore please get in touch the hearing a legal podcast from thomson reuters to find out more go to tr.com forward slash the hearing or subscribe via iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.